On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Now, if you've been browsing a lot of the international coverage about the storm elections, you might see a lot of top stories about who is Sinn Féin, who is Michelle O'Neill, and indeed some uh, coverage today in the Sunday Times that some people don't find too tasteful. Um, the British public and the worldwide public are probably safely say they're trying to learn a little bit more about Northern Irish politics this weekend. There might be many people here in the Republic, though, who might be wondering about the history of the Alliance Party. Now, this isn't the first significant impact that the Alliance has had on the Northern Irish election, but its fortunes have waned and fluctuated significantly in recent times. And not for the first time either, it does face some questions around where it would stand in the case of a border poll. Um, Donald Fallon has been uh, browsing around the strongholds of East and South Belfast, <laughs> in his mind at least, uh, to try and figure out what's going on with the Alliance vote and why it's been so popular. And he's with us in studio as ever. Um, Donald, I suppose, no matter what happens now, uh, like there is no denying the historical ramifications of what we've seen in the last couple of days. Yeah, and a, a quote that I was surprised we didn't hear more of actually in, in the press in recent days was the, the words of Prime Minister James Craig in 1934 in, in, in the Northern Irish Parliament. He said, All I boast of is that we are a Protestant Parliament and a Protestant state. It will be rather interesting for historians in the future to compare a Catholic state launched in the South with a Protestant state launched in the North and see which gets on the better and prospers the more. And look, a lot has changed North and South since James Craig said those words mm. 88 years ago. I mean, that is not an, an incredibly long time ago. In our decade of centenaries, we think a lot about what was said 100 years ago, 88 years ago. The Prime Minister of Northern Ireland was referring to it as basically a Protestant parliament for a Protestant people. And, you know, there is quite rightly, there's a dominant story in the Northern elections. It's a fact of history that James Craig and the people around him, they actually believed that such a thing as a nationalist Prime Minister, or we'd say First Minister now, yeah. uh, was not alone undesirable, but they hoped unobtainable, deliberately mm. unobtainable. Well, that, was, that was the whole that was, point of Northern Ireland, wasn't it? <laughs> exactly. It was to ring fence a Protestant majority forevermore. Yeah. Exactly. And look, there's a fine, there's a still a fine dance to make it a concrete reality, by the way. I mean, as you would know, this isn't set in stone yet. Mm-hmm. We'll storm and sit, we'll wait and see. But there are other stories in the election too. And one of them uh, is the Alliance Party gaining nine seats. And it was interesting to watch a lot of you know international media during the week Yeah, the big question, I think, well, obviously the big question was, will there be a Sinn Féin First Minister? But the second big question in the global press was, who are these guys? Yeah, and it seems a lot of people, including a lot of those uh, global people writing on the impact uh, impact and outcome of the Northern Ireland election, they probably presume the alliance to be a bit of a new kid on the block, but far from it. Yeah, yeah, I heard them described on on German TV during the week as a new alternative to orange and green, which makes them sound very fresh, very (laughs) exciting. But it's a party with a history spanning more than five decades, which is is extraordinary. Mm. And it emerged from a situation not unlike that which benefited it at at the polls this week. And what we'll find today as we talk about this really is that the story of the Alliance Party is always entangled in you know, various crises, and they've had plenty of crises uh, in Ulster Unionism. You know, mm. when Ulster Unionism is doing bad, moderate opinion will move towards this this party. And it's had strong days out in the past. I mean, in the 1970s, in its founding decade, on occasion it took almost 15% of the vote in local elections. But that was a time, just as now, when unionism was in deep trouble. Yeah, so the roots of the party then, uh, to bring it back to square one, are the implosion uh, of the UUP at the time um, under the stewardship of someone who we would now see as a fairly moderate leader. 
Captain Terence O'Neill, what a great name. Uh, and he, I mean, in the late 1960s, there's real ideological tension on the issue of Captain O'Neill. He's the fourth Prime Minister of Northern Ireland and he's the first moderate, really. You know, he's mm. keen to, to, to build bridges. And if there is a perfect analogy for Northern Irish unionism in the late 1960s, it's this. O'Neill invites Lamas up to visit Belfast for talks okay. in the mid-1960s. Just friendly neighbour attitudes. Yeah. yeah, you know, Lamas was opening up the southern economy. O'Neill wanted to do much the same in the, in, in the north. He invites Lamas up for talks. Ian Paisley and his followers uh, used the visit to pelt snowballs at the car of Sean Lamas. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's the so level of high that, discourse going that, on in the 1960s. That says much of it. Ian What's Paisley happening is throwing in, snowballs at the Taoiseach. The, the two sides of Ulster Unionism in the 1960s. You know, Captain O'Neill sitting down and talking with Lamas, Ian Paisley pelting snowballs at him. And there is something laughable about it. I mean, throwing snowballs at a guy who you know dodged bullets in the GPO and been in the the four courts in 1922. I don't think <laughs> Sean Lamas was afraid of snowballs and there were worse things than snowballs being hurled yeah. uh, just a few years later when the civil rights movement erupts in, in the north and faces kind of violent confrontation. But this guy, Terence O'Neill, the, the, the northern prime minister, he's walking a really fine line. He's trying to keep unionists on side while, while he's also trying to bring about more reconciliation, we might say, in, in, in the north and create a normal society for the first time. Mm. So he ends up kind of condemning some in the civil rights movement. He says things like, We've heard sufficient for now about civil rights. Let us hear about civic responsibility. It's a short step from the throwing of paving stones to the laying of tombstones. And I, for one, can think of no cause in Ulster which will be advanced by the death of a single Ulsterman. And yet still, and maybe it's because he was slightly more reconciled towards civil rights, a lot of people then saw him as being too soft and that therefore he was a threat to Northern Ireland's place in the Union. Absolutely, that he's a soft touch. And there's always this belief that, you know, the biggest threat to the Union is a soft Unionist, that, that, that they could bring it down by accident, you know. Yeah. And you get these pro and anti kind of Terence O'Neill camps that emerge within Ulster Unionism including what's called the New Ulster Movement. It's a pressure group set up to promote kind of O'Neill, pro-O'Neill candidates, moderate candidates, uh, when the general election is held in the North in 1969. But O'Neill doesn't get a strong majority in that election. He resigns soon after it. But there's the nucleus of the alliance, this New Ulster Movement, these kind of moderate unionists who believe that O'Neill was, was the best hope for them. So it's a liberal unionist tradition, you might say, at least at the beginning. And this new party has a number of kind of founding principles, one of which will be that they're in favour of Northern Ireland uh, remaining within the United Kingdom. And perhaps it wasn't then an issue that they really wanted to tackle or address something that they would rather have stayed on the fence from and not drag the bull by the horns, but they they sort of had to address it then and then other parties had been brought down by it. That's the weird thing. They're kind of saying, look, all Northern Irish politics is shaped by the constitutional question. We need to move beyond the constitutional question. But then people say, yeah, but what do you think about the constitutional question? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah, you can't really yeah, get yeah. away from it. And any party who had talked about doing this before them, we're going to move beyond orange and green, the same thing had come about. So in the 40s and 50s, you had a very strong party in the North, the, the Northern Ireland Labour Party. They were a significant force uh, in in, lo- in local politics there. But when they were kind of forced to declare themselves in the late 40s, you know, what are you? Are you for the union? Are you against it? Mm. And they came out and said, look, we're in favour of remaining within it. Catholic support just dissipated, just collapsed for that party. So, you know, we've touched on this before on the slot. It wasn't just Irish nationalists who were sometimes against the union. Confusingly, you know, there were some people who spoke of the idea of an independent Northern Ireland. Yeah, some people, yeah this, this idea of Ulster nationalism, which you don't yeah. hear very much about, but they, they thought that basically, just like the Republic, just don't be part of the UK, but don't be part of a union with Ireland either. Just sit there as a six-county utopia. Absolutely mad. Vanguard, you know, these were loyalists who felt, look, we've been betrayed by London, but we're not going to Dublin's arms either. You know, yeah. we want an independent Northern Ireland. So this new party, the Alliance... You have Irish separatists on one side of you. You have, you know, Ulster vanguardism on the other. And as far as Alliance was concerned, they said, look, the answer is going to be, we think 
within the UK framework, uh, not outside mm-hmm. of it. Uh, just on, on the talk there of how everything kind of gets viewed through the constitutional question, I remember, um, I think Good Friday was maybe only marking its 10th or its 12th anniversary, so a, a young anniversary in the start of the last decade, and George Mitchell saying that he only really felt like it was something akin to Mission Accomplished when he sat up in the public gallery in Stormont and watched them having a debate around like water charges or bin collection or some, <laughs> yeah. something really mundane about the ordinary bureaucracy of a running society and once you weren't talking about decommissioning or weapons or constitutional questions that was when he felt like it was it was Mission Accomplished. Yeah but what colour are the bins? Orange or green? Well yeah, yeah brown just as <laughs> neutral. Um, one of the first things that the Alliance then had to contend with um, was something with which again it may be confronted very soon which was this question of, of what would you do in the event of a border poll? Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's another interesting thing in a lot of the international coverage around around the North. They talk a lot about, oh, there could be a border poll. Imagine a border poll in the North. There's, there's been one. You know, at the time when the Alliance Party is born, the question of a border poll was in the air as well. And it actually happened in March 1973. And younger listeners might be surprised uh, to hear that because it's a very forgotten episode, I yeah. think, in, in the history of the North. The turnout was very low, 587 uh, percent, largely because kind of nationalists boycotted the border poll. Well, which is why no one's heard about it because it's nearly been airbrushed out of our version of history. Exactly, inclu- including the the SDLP. Uh, and ninety eight point nine percent of people who voted in that poll voted to remain in the in the UK. So it's very rare outside of Pyongyang or something that ninety eight point nine percent of people vote for anything. But that's how it went. And you know, many people were unhappy with the border poll. The phrase there were two questions asked in it: Do you want Northern Ireland to remain a part of the United Kingdom? Yes, no. And do you want Northern Ireland to be joined with the Irish Republic outside the United Kingdom? Yes, no. But they were phrased in such a way that was kind of odd, you know, and in the London House of Commons, the the Shadow Secretary of State for the North, he made the point that there should have been another question. Do you want eventually to live in a United Ireland brought about uh, by a free consent of the peoples of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and he was kind of mocked for for <laughs> suggesting that. <laughs> which is mad that he was mocked for something which had such foresight. Because yeah, you talk ma- about like twenty five years later, that becomes the basis for uh, everything that follows. Imagine a question with some nuance in it at the border poll. Yeah. But you know, yeah, the ninety eight point nine percent of people, whenever ninety eight point nine percent of people vote for anything, it's probably best ignored. But outside of nationalism, the, the strongest voice of opposition to that border poll was the Alliance. And they used a term that we still hear used all the time. They described that 1973 border poll as a sectarian headcount. Yeah. So while this was a party that had undeniably come out of liberal unionism, their opposition to that border poll in the, in, in the 70s uh, was, was one of the defining things about them. And it is important to state that although it, its roots might be in this kind of liberal unionism, it did, even from its early days, attract some Catholics. And it, one of them went on to become Lord Mayor of Derry in the 1970s. Yeah, the Alliance drew kind of some interesting people in in those early days. And there was a joke about the Alliance. I mean, sometimes Republicans joke that there were no no Catholics in it. That, you know, they said, what's the difference between uh, the RUC and the Alliance Party? There's a handful of Catholics in the RUC. But in truth, there were Catholics in the Alliance from the very beginning. Uh, Tom Gormley, former Nationalist MP, uh, went over to the party. And I think that the view of them in the Southern press, you know, what I could see kind of glancing over the archives and the Dublin newspapers, this was seen as a middle of the road, middle class Protestant party. Okay. And that wasn't entirely wasn't entirely true. And there's a lovely history of Derry and the Troubles. Neil O'Doherty has got a great title as well, From Civil Rights to Armalites. <laughs> he makes the <laughs> point that well. uh, for a period anyway, he writes that the Alliance Party in Derry came to be identified primarily with the Catholic middle class and even had a, a Lord Mayor of Derry, Ivor Canavan in the mid-70s. So uh, Niall makes this really interesting point that I hadn't really thought about, about Northern Irish politics. He says... The Alliance gathered most of its support in Belfast from Protestants and in Derry from Catholics. 
from the more secure community which could afford a little flexibility in its political preferences. Mm. That's interesting to think about. Well, I've always thought that politics mattered more to people who had more on the line, people for whom it's it's literally bread and butter stuff. If this is about how you put food on the table, it's going to matter that little bit more. So if you do have some financial comfort, then maybe that's where it comes. And also, I suppose, it's a nice illustration of where the even the, the title Alliance comes from. Because if you're built mm. from two different sectarian tribes in the two major cities, then it, it's a nice uh, little summary. Um, it has been more of a mixed bag um, in recent times, but if it was uh, one O'Neill crisis, and I use crisis in a sort of a slightly lighthearted way there, that began the alliance, it seems that the, the Brexit crisis had a similar effect and might lead to another O'Neill crisis in yeah, 2022. I mean, yeah, it's extraordinary. Like The alliance does well when unionism is in crisis. That seems to be the, the story of, of the history of the alliance. Uh, and in our own time, it's been very different. You know, in 2003, the vote of the alliance fell to just 3.7% in an assembly election, which is very small. You know, what's the margin of error in polling? 2%? Uh, if, if, well, for, for a full election, you'd hope it was zero, but for, for opinion polling, it would be around 3%. Yeah, so you're, sort is, of, you're close to statistical zero which there. Is, yeah. Which is fascinating. They took 5.2% in 2007. But then in 2019, you, know, you have a, a British general election right after Brexit. The feeling is very strong. They take an eye-opening 16.8% of the vote in the, in the 2019 British general election. And I don't think we noticed in, in, in the South how well they did in that election because it was a British general election, it was held under that absolutely abysmal system that they use over there, first past the post. Yeah. So you can get 16.8% of the vote in the entire province of Ulster mm. and you end up, one, well, well six M- counties of the province yes. of Ulster and end up with a single MP. Yeah, so you get one seat out of 18 Which for is, that level. Which you know is something that Jim Allister is pretty upset about right now because you can get 7% of the vote and you can win one seat out of 90. But that's because if you split it evenly across every constituency, yes. then you're never going to reach a quota. So look, I mean, that took place against the backdrop of Brexit. And yeah, just to finish on that point, because you can't really say it enough you know alliance does well the magic ingredient that they need is chaos in, in unionism so the, the future may be bright for the alliance party uh, if it isn't bright for somebody else uh, the future is bright the future is bright the future is distinctly neither green yellow or orange perhaps a little bit green <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Donald Fallon is the author of the community books and of Henry Street from Tenement to Suburbia he is the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast about the history of our capital city which you'll find anywhere you get your audio online and you are now being seen on Monday nights on RT Radio 1 Donald. on the busca yeah uh, brainstorm tomorrow's a really interesting one I, I met the man, Kieran Moran, who brought about the yellow Schlitter and why he did it and the <laughs> science, an the digital Schlitter. They scan these things now. Absolutely amazing. Uh, so we went out to Nafina and Moby Road and uh, learned the history of that of that new digital Schlitter and other great stories on it tomorrow night. I might even break ranks and tune into State TV tomorrow night at <laughs> half past eight to see that. Uh, Donald is the face of Brainstorm at Monday nights at 8.30 on RTE1. On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.